my father is a man who is larger than me. He stands about six foot one. I'm five foot nine. He's heavier than me. He's bigger than me. And one thing that I remember about my father, uh, my father's still alive. One thing that I think about is how comforting his hands are to me. Even now when I reach out to shake my father's hand, my hand kind of disappears inside his hand. I can think back to my childhood and of course my father disciplined me because any father who loves their children disciplines their children. But by far, when I think of my father's hands, I think of comfort and security. I think about love and protection. And I believe that every Christian, no matter what your experience has been with your father and your experience with his hands in your life, that God wants you to know that if you've trusted in Christ, his son, that you are held secure and safe in his hands. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can take you out of his hands. That's what we're going to see in the passage this afternoon in John chapter 10. This last passage in John's gospel that we considered together, uh, we began considering John many months ago, but two weeks ago, we looked at the first 21 verses of chapter 10. In the chapter just before that, in chapter 9, Jesus had just miraculously healed a man who had been blind from birth, but the Jewish leaders wouldn't believe it, even though the man repeatedly testified, I'm the man who was blind, and that it was Jesus who had healed him. Then in the presence of those stubborn Jewish leaders, Jesus began in chapter 10 to proclaim that He is the good shepherd of His sheep. He said it over and over, I am the good shepherd. He was drawing on Old Testament imagery which described, which is where God described Himself as a shepherd of His sheep and a time that would come in the future when He would come to rescue His sheep from wicked shepherds who took advantage of the sheep. He would gather them up. He would secure them. He would save them. Not only would he call and gather his sheep up, but this good shepherd would lay his life down for the flock. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 10, 1 through 21. He would lay his life down for the sheep. Now, as we come to verse 22, in chapter 10, it's a new scene, and it takes place a few months later in the temple courts. The leaders who were looking to kill Jesus earlier in the Gospel of John are still there nipping at Jesus' heels. They're looking for the proper time and the best excuse to kill Him. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 10. Chapter 10, and we're beginning with verse 22. Follow along as I read. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, you're our rock. You're our redeemer. You are our good shepherd. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This encounter between Jesus and the Jewish leaders should convince us beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God, the Son sent to securely save us. Jesus is God the Son, sent to securely save us. I hope you see that as we work our way through this passage. The sermon this afternoon is going to have three points in its outline, and the first one covers verses 22 through 30, and we could title that section, Saved and Secure. Saved and secure. The setting for the conversations in this passage is 
during what was called the Feast of Dedication. Now, you might remember that these Jewish feasts have been an important way that John has organized his retelling of the true story of Jesus' ministry. This is a new feast we've not seen mentioned before. We've seen the Feast of Booths. We've seen the Passover feast mentioned. But this is an interesting one, particularly because it's not a feast that God commanded the Israelites to celebrate in the Old Testament. If you flip through the Old Testament, you won't find the Feast of Dedication. There was a time, 150 years before the life of Jesus, when this feast began. And it began because that was a time when the Israelites won their freedom from a Greek ruler who had conquered them as a nation and set up idol worship inside their temple. Something that was sacrilegious to them beyond belief. Well, they rose up and they threw off the Greeks at that particular time. They pushed them out of their land. They cleansed and rededicated the temple. And because of that experience of cleansing and rededicating the temple, they also instituted this new feast, the Feast of Dedication, to mark that time. The Feast of Dedication has another name. You may be familiar with it. It's called Hanukkah. Maybe you know that name better than the Feast of Dedication. I do, I know. I grew up in a city in the United States that had a very large Jewish population, and I can remember every year around Christmas time, I had Jewish friends who were celebrating Hanukkah. Of course, I didn't know the Bible very well then, and I didn't know it was the Feast of Dedication. Jesus is here at the Feast of Dedication. He's walking in the temple area called Solomon's Colonnade, which of would have been a big covered area which later on the early church would gather in in those first months and first years of the life of the church. The Jews have gathered around Jesus. They press Him with a question really that they already know the answer to. And John tells us that it's winter time. You know, I think it's interesting, uh, just like John has told us that it's physically dark at specific times. So, for example, when Nicodemus the Pharisee went to visit Jesus at night, here he's telling us something about the physical environment. It's winter time, and he may be telling us, indicating the kind of cold rejection that Jesus is getting from the Jews. Their question if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. But Jesus' answer is blunt and to the point. Look at verse 25 with me. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, Jesus has not said explicitly word for word, I am the Messiah. He's not said, I am the Christ. But all of his teachings and especially all of his miracles, you put it all together, his works, should have convinced them about his identity. But they haven't. Why? 
Why have they not convinced these Jews? These Jews who had all of the Old Testament scriptures foretelling that a Messiah would come. Well, they don't believe because they aren't Jesus' sheep. That's Jesus' explanation. Jesus here is returning to this metaphor that he used back up earlier in John 10, months before when he described himself as the good shepherd and those who hear his call and come to him as his sheep. He's returning to that metaphor to describe himself and his true followers. Did you notice the order that Jesus speaks about being a sheep and believing? Look at verse 26 again. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Believing follows from and is based on being one of Jesus' sheep. A person doesn't become one of Jesus' sheep by believing. Believing demonstrates your identity, that you are a member of Jesus' flock, that Jesus has chosen you to be one of His sheep, that He's given you a supernatural ability to understand His voice. In other words, believing in Christ reveals something that has already happened in you by the power of God. Now, this passage, like many others in John, remind us that it's not that people won't turn and trust in Christ. It's that they can't. They can't unless God enables them to. Jesus has made this clear throughout His teaching in John's Gospel. We could flip back to John chapter 3 when He said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then a few verses later, He says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Just a few verses below these very verses we're looking at, 25 and 26. In this very passage, he says, My Father who has given them to me, given the sheep to me. Unless God first works in a person... They cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less enter the kingdom of God. Unless the Father draws them and gives them to Jesus, the sheep will not hear, they will not believe, they will not come to Jesus, the good shepherd. But I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is not opposed to the need for every person to repent and believe in Christ. Every person who sees and enters into the kingdom repents and believes in Christ. A decision is necessary. But saying that God must work in a person's heart, God must cause them to be born again in order for them to believe, is not opposed to the necessity of people to make a decision. The whole Bible, in fact, tells us that Christians 
were spiritually dead in their sin, but God made us alive, didn't He? So that we could believe when we heard the good news of the gospel. It's all throughout the pages of the Bible. Jesus' teaching was clear enough for the disciples to believe in Him. He was clear enough for those on the other side of the Jordan at the very bottom of our passage for them to believe in Him. So clarity wasn't a problem for these Jews. Their problem was that they were spiritually unable to believe. One thing that this should teach us is that we must pray to God for people to come to faith. Absolutely, we should share the gospel with them persuasively. I hope you're doing that. We're planning right now to hopefully run a core class in the spring that will be about how to share the gospel with your friends. You need to be equipped in how to do that, how to speak persuasively about the Jesus of the Scriptures. Paul and all the gospel all the apostles shared the gospel with the goal of persuading their hearers. He even told them, I'm trying to persuade you. And we should too. But even as we do, we must pray because only a sovereign work of God can give people the new birth that's necessary for them to believe. Are you praying for the salvation of your family and your friends? Maybe it's been a long time that you've been praying. Perhaps you are not really sure how it could even happen. Who might God put into their lives in addition to you that would share the gospel with them? And maybe you've begun to give up hope. And so you've stopped praying. I know as I was preparing this sermon, I had to stop and begin to pray for my family members who don't know the Lord Jesus. I began to pray for friends that I had gotten used to working alongside and playing alongside, but I had stopped praying for them. How can they come to Christ if God doesn't work in them? And God tells us in His Word to pray. Keep knocking on the door, asking the Lord of the harvest to send harvesters into the field to work in their hearts. Are you even praying for your enemies? How many people might have been praying for Saul of Tarsus when he was struck down by the Lord on the road to Damascus? We're not told in the Scriptures, but I suspect there were people praying for him. We too should pray for our enemies. Only God can give the new birth that enables saving faith. While these Jews could not and would not believe, Jesus did have sheep that were a part of His flock, and He describes with wonderful detail how they are revealed, how they're saved, and how they're protected by Him there in verses 27 through 29. Look there with me again. These are just wonderful verses for us to drink in. I want to encourage you to let each of these Beautiful phrases sink deep into your heart and mind. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, 
I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is greater than all has given those sheep to me and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. You know, every one of those phrases deserves an, a sermon in and of itself. So much wonderful truth in those two verses, those three verses. Could there even be more comforting words than these that describe our salvation or our eternal security? These Jews could hear Jesus' voice, but they couldn't hear the gospel call of the Good Shepherd in His words. But everyone whom God causes to be reborn by the Spirit does hear it. If you're a Christian who's repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, then you cannot be lost. The Father changed your heart and drew you to Him. The Father gave you to Christ His Son. It wasn't you that took the initiative, it was God. You were lost in your sin when God began to draw you, when God took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh that could believe. You are safely held tight in Jesus' hand. You are safely held tight in the Father's hand. I couldn't help but read these verses and think about the hand of Jesus and the hand of the Father cupped together and the fact that we are there safe with Him. What greater security could you want? What greater security could you find than to be held in the hands of God? Are you weak? Of course you're weak. You know you're weak. Even on your best days, you're weak. But God is strong. And no one is stronger than God. Are you struggling? Of course you struggle. You will struggle even if you're not struggling now, but your struggles cannot work you free from His grip. Even as you're struggling, you're struggling in His hands. Isn't it kind of the Lord to speak to us in these vivid ways? You and I know that God doesn't have literal hands. Of course, Jesus does. But God is describing Himself to us with metaphors that arouse our emotions, with descriptions that help us understand and are touched deeply in our hearts. He knows us. He loves us. He keeps us. Perhaps like me, these words of help and hope remind you of Paul's words written to the church in Rome. There in that great chapter, Romans chapter 8, where he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he goes on to say, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of these things, nor can anyone, not even Satan, separate us from the love of God in Christ. Are you reminding yourself of these encouraging truths? Are you feeling weak or you're struggling right now? And you feel like somehow I've wriggled out of the hands of God, I'm off all by myself and in danger? Are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting in Him still? If so, you're not out of His hands. He's holding you tight. Have you reminded another person who's a fellow church member of these things lately? Oh, brothers and sisters, when we come across great truths like this, oh, what a blessing it is when we share them with one another. It's worth picking up the telephone and calling someone just to say, look at what I read in Scripture today. This is true for you and I. These are the kinds of words that we need to be reminding one another with. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, in the chapter on our adoption in Christ, encourages Christians to repeat six truths. He says, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, I want to tell you those six things, and I want you to repeat them to me right now. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Brothers and sisters, the love of God for you and your salvation through Christ is secure. I was meeting with Charlie Donald a few weeks ago and he reminded me of these verses in Isaiah 40 that speak of the Good Shepherd. They say, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. No one can snatch you from God's hand. We can't push off from these verses and go on to the subsequent verses without pointing out this stunning statement of Jesus in verse 30. Look at that verse with me. I and the Father are one. Jesus was fully man, but Jesus was also fully God. He shares the same essence as the Father. His divine will is the same will as the Father. His divine power is the same power as the Father. His divine work is the same work as the Father. How can there be any doubt? Jesus is God. 
That's what the Jews understood Jesus to be confessing here, which brings us to the second point in the sermon, sent and consecrated. Sent and consecrated 